The Daily Rios for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2015. Hey everybody, this is your host, Peter. So this episode is a continuation uh, from last episode, episode 324. In that episode, I responded to a feedback by Charlton Hero, who wrote about episode 306, where I talked about uh, 1980s Marvel limited series. So last episode... I went in chronological order all through the 80s and talked about those Marvel Limited series that I had read, and they were just, you know, just random quick thoughts about some of those miniseries and which ones were my favorites, which ones did I have a soft spot for, which ones did I think were really good. Uh, And this was a, a way to just talk about 80s comics, which I love to do. So I said in that episode that I would do the same thing for DC in the 80s, and that's what I'm going to do for this episode. But I'm probably only going to get through 1980 through 1984. And the reason is, uh, these DC miniseries and maxi series I've read far more of, and I can probably talk about them uh, much more in-depth than I did with the Marvel Limited series. So what I did is I'm not talking about movie adaptations. I'm not talking about reprints of older stories. Uh, I'm not talking about series that were meant to be ongoing but ran out. These are uh, miniseries and maxi-series from DC in the 80s. Now, Marvel used to call them limited series, so that's why I'm making the difference here. Marvel's uh, limited series were called limited series, and DC would call them miniseries if they were six issues or under, and maxi series if they were seven issues and over. Now, unlike Marvel, DC at the time didn't have a separate line that they could put some of their more mature titles in, so they didn't have Epic, they didn't have Vertigo at this time. Some of these miniseries probably would have belonged to that alternate publishing line. So when I did the Marvel miniseries uh, episode, the Marvel limited series episode, I didn't talk about Epic. But I may talk about some of DC's output that were a little bit more adult. You know, think of something like Ronin or um, The Prisoner or V for Vendetta. All of that stuff most likely would have fallen under a separate line. But DC just published them as DC, so I feel like I can include them. Now, the one miniseries that I'm not going to talk about actually came out in 1979, and that was the World of Krypton three-issue miniseries that is more or less considered the first unofficial miniseries. Um, There might have been... There might be some other title that I'm not thinking of, but pretty much every all the research that I do... They consider that miniseries, World of Krypton, from 1979, to be the first miniseries uh, because it was meant to be published like a miniseries. But who knows? I'm sure there was something else, uh, maybe an independent publisher that did the same kind of thing or whatever. So uh, as far as DC goes, it is World of Krypton. Is it also the first miniseries from Marvel, DC, and every other company? That I'm not sure about. So I'm going to start with 1980, and again, this is chronological order, and I'm going to stick to the ones that I've read, although I will mention the ones that I haven't read. 
So we start with 1980 and we start with the three-issue Untold Legend of Batman written by Len Wein. The first issue had artwork by John Byrne. Yes, John Byrne in 1980, way before he did Man of Steel. And then the second and third issue was drawn by Jim Aparo, who I have said many times is the artist that draws my version of Batman. So this was a retelling of Batman's origin. And I actually read this story, this miniseries, years later uh, because it was a giveaway promotion with uh, the Batman serial that probably came out in, you know, in time for the Batman movie in, in 1989, 1990. So I didn't actually read the comic book version of this. I read the mini comic version that came because of a cereal box promotion, which is kind of funny. Um, unfortunately, I don't have those anymore. I probably sold them along the way. But uh, yeah, so it's a retelling of Batman's origin. I want to say somewhere along the way within this story, um, Thomas Wayne does don a Batman-like costume. I think that's part of this story, and it's probably part of earlier sto Batman stories as well. But that's one of the things I remember. And it was all under covers by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, which were great. So The Untold Legend of Batman, DC's second miniseries and the first miniseries to feature Batman. Apparently DC liked the three-issue miniseries because we also get Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes, three-issue miniseries in 1980. And in this story, we learn the secret behind a family connection between R.J. Brand, who is the Legion's benefactor, and one of the Legionnaires. Uh, and I believe we touched on not all of the Legionnaires' origins, but we touched on many of them. Uh, I haven't read this in years, but, um, you know, it's one of the early uh, miniseries from DC, and it's kind of funny. You know, you got Superman, Batman, Legion of Superheroes. In 1981, we got Tales of the Green Lantern Corps. Feels like they were trying to hit a lot of their heavy hitters. Again, another three-issue series, Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, this uh, featured the Green Lantern Corps versus Necron and Krona. It is the first appearance of the Green Lantern known as Arisia. And the covers were by Brian Bolin, who at this time, he had just started doing artwork for DC for maybe about a year or two. Uh, so some this was some of his earliest cover work for DC. And then in 1981, we have the Krypton Chronicles, uh, three issues of this. I've never read them, but I do know one of the issues has this great Superman family tree of all of his Krypton Kryptonian relatives, which is kind of cool. And uh, Krypton Chronicles and I believe Tales of the Green Lantern Corps actually had the banner that said miniseries on it. Um, and then the next miniseries, Phantom Zone, another Superman miniseries, which was four issues, uh, it had the banner, but then after issue one, the banner would also say two of four, three of four, etc. So now we were really starting to differentiate between, uh, you know, just randomly putting out three issues and actually calling them miniseries on the cover. Now, I've never read this Phantom Zone series. I don't think I've ever seen it either. Uh, but it's written by Steve Gerber with art by Gene Colan, which when I see that writing team, I'm like, OK, I have to read this. Okay, then 1982, uh, another 
mega hit for DC. Uh, Tales of the New Teen Titans four issue miniseries. So they feature, you know, popular characters here. And I'm sure I'll talk about this on the Tower podcast when when it actually falls within the chronological order of being released. But obviously this was a chance to spotlight the new members of the New Teen Titans, Cyborg, Raven, Changeling, and Starfire. Now each issue was by George Perez, but they all had different inkers. I imagine that was done so that um, Perez could keep or the issues could keep coming out and you would have four different inkers on four different issues that maybe could help speed the schedule along. Because you have to remember, Paris is doing New Teen Titans at the time and he's also doing Tales of the New Teen Titans, this miniseries. I'm sure he's doing covers on various other DC comics and he's getting ready eventually in about another, I would say... Uh, six or seven issues to do the first New Teen Titans annual one, which had a painted cover and all those interior pages. So for him to also do this miniseries uh, was pretty, pretty great, pretty great. You know, he was, uh, he was chugging along. Also in 1982, Camelot 3000, DC's first 12-issue maxi-series. So they would create a phrase called maxi-series. This uh, Maxi series was the first time they used their Baxter run, I believe, their Baxter paper. So it was much more vibrant. And speaking of Brian Boland, the series was by Mike W. Barr and artist Brian Boland doing interiors now. The whole thing is a spin on the Arthurian legend taking place in the future. And when some of the Knights of the Round Table get resurrected, uh, Mike W. Barr plays around with. Um, gender reversal roles so there's some gender identity stuff going on here so which i think is great this is 1982 and in a comic you know they're they're dealing with uh gender issues which is kind of fascinating um i believe they touched on homosexuality uh, it's a very adult story it's beautiful it was very late in its later issues because brian boland was being very very specific apparently he wasn't used to having another anchor on his artwork so he wanted it to he wanted his art to be so definitive and so defined i really should say so that there could be no nothing lost in the in in the translation um they also toyed with the idea of shooting the artwork directly from the pencils without the inking process and the only pages that survived that process were the first two pages of the first issue and then they decided, no, it's going to take too long uh, because Brian Boland's going to be too detailed. So they decided to scrap that. Now, this I've, it's been years since I've read this. There are probably a couple of trades. Uh, I forget when the most recent trade of this uh, came out, maybe a couple of years back. I remember loving it, though. It's just, just loving it. I love the who's who entry on Camelot 3000. I love the promotion, the ad for the series where the lady in the lake is holding up Excalibur in water, but the water is, I believe, coolant for a nuclear reactor, uh, for a nuclear plant, which is kind of just so interesting. So I would love to get this again, just so I could read it one more time and see what I think of it, you know, now. All right, 1983, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, also a 12-issue maxi-series that was kicked off 
by a 16-page preview in a Legion of Superheroes issue. And I love the promotional ad that was for this. It said, Amy was an ordinary girl until last night. Dun, dun, dun. Great moody artwork by Jean, uh, excuse me, by Ernie Cologne. And the story was written by uh, Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin. I absolutely love this series. I was probably only a 10 or 11 when this came out. I remember it being gory and bloody and there were plots and subplots and political machinations and it felt like Game of Thrones meets cross-gen meets the Zodiac. Um, it's high fantasy. It's wish fulfillment. Um, interesting character designs. Uh, the story kind of weaves in and out, right, between being good and not so good and then back to being good again. Dark Opal was a great villain. I think as the series progressed, they 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 lightened the tone a bit. The first couple issues feel a lot heavier than the later issues. You know, I I just really need to do a breakdown of this series because I love it. I absolutely love this the 12 issues and I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how biased I'll be. Um I don't know how um objective I, I'll be, I guess I should say, because I do like it so much, but I do remember it being um just great and capturing my imagination, which uh, to me makes for a successful comic. So um, Amethyst, Princess of Gen World. There is a showcase of it that has the first 12-issue maxi-series and then most of the follow-up, um, the ongoing series. It doesn't have all of it, but it has most of it. So I don't know why they never completed that, but there you go. Uh, and I do have that. And of course, there was the sort of sorcery comic that came out with the New 52 that featured an update of Amethyst. And she's had other appearances you know, past this maxi-series, past her ongoing series. Interesting ones, too. And we'll talk about one um, in the back half of this spotlight of 1980s DC's DC uh, miniseries. All right, then we have, also in 1983, Green Arrow 4-issue miniseries, written by Mike W. Barr, art by Trevor Von Eden, but I've never read it. Um, I think I might have the first issue, but I don't have the remaining issues, so one of these days I'll get it. And then we had the six-issue Ronin series by Frank Miller. Now, this is one of those minis that, you know, had DC had a separate line, they probably would have thrown this in there. These were, um, they had no ads. They were double, if not triple-sized, six issues. Scary as heck. The Agat the Demon was so scary. Uh, told in, in an apocalyptic future, of course. Um... I loved, loved, loved these issues. I got them as back issues. Um, I saw them, you know, as back issues, but I bought them in the 80s, so it was probably only a year or two after uh, that I that I saw all the series in Ronin. What is this? I don't know. Let me pick it up. Probably when I read Frank Miller's Dark Knight, um, you know, because I didn't know who Frank Miller was. Um, you know, I got Dark Knight, I got Born Again off the shelf, not necessarily knowing. Frank Miller to me was the guy who did a pinup in Superman 400, or he did random covers here or there. You know, I didn't know who Frank Miller was. So because of those two things, I probably saw Ronin and thought, oh, I'll get that as well. Um, it was very adult, a lot of sex, a lot of nudity language. I remember there being an awesome gatefold pullout page in the final issue that just blew my mind. And it's one of those comics that it really does transport me right back to my youth when when I read it. 
Uh, I can I can just remember me being very young and looking at all this and just the wonderment of the visuals and how different it was. Uh, yeah, uh, just such a great series. Um, all right, now here's one that I don't know if it's great, but I know that I love it. It's Sort of the Atom, four issues by Jan Stranad and Gil Kane on art. Uh, there was a story in Justice League of America at the time where Adam traveled to the microverse of the DCU, which they called the microcosmos. And he was kind of suffering a nervous breakdown, and that's why he did it. So then on the heels of that, they did this four-issue miniseries where he separates from Gene Mooring, and he goes to South America, and something goes wrong, and he gets trapped at six inches, and he meets this alien... Uh, race that is also of course six inches tall and he gets wrapped up and it's kind of like sort of the atom meet uh, at superheroes meets um you know sword and sorcery or barbarian tales meets you know like conan the barbarian and it probably was a way for gil kane to do something different than superheroic you know mix it up a little bit so not only were there four issues but then there were three specials that followed and it eventually would go into a ongoing series called Power of the Atom, which wasn't very good. But I loved this miniseries. Atom versus frogs and snakes and, you know, this alien race. And um, when he returns home in the fourth issue, because he's been wearing his mask the whole time, he has this sunburn that's in the shape of his mask or this tan. So he has tan lines in the shape of his mask, which is great. Um just some interesting stuff between him and Gene Loring that, uh, you know, those people who think that Gene Loring's character was was not written well for Identity Crisis probably never read this or some of his, some of the uh, 70s Adam stuff where Gene Loring goes crazy. So I, I don't know. I love this miniseries. I love everything about it. And um, I should really, I think I was supposed to do an episode on Raging Bullets about it. I think Sean Whelan and I, both are really big fans of it, and and we said at some point we should get together and do that. So I should really send him an email. All right. Also in 1983, Power Lords, the three-issue series. I talked about it way back. Well, I didn't talk about it. I played a commercial of, of the toys back in episode 274. And because of that, Eric from the Longbox Review found the three issues. He heard that I, I guess maybe somewhere along the way I, I didn't have the issues and I might have said that, he found them and sent them to me. And I've been meaning to do an episode on them, so um, I did tell Eric that I received them after he emailed me. I was hoping to drop an episode, so that way he knew I got them, but I just haven't had the time yet. So I will do an episode on those three issues, because they are um, very obscure, but really interesting Mark Texier artwork on them. And uh, I just want to read them again to see how silly they are. And then uh, we had Nathaniel Dusk, Private Investigator, four issues by Don McGregor and Gene Colan, uh, trying to do, you know, hard, hard-boiled detective stories. And this miniseries was scanned from Gene Colan's pencils. So the artwork has a really unique look to it. All right, from 1984, and this will be the last year I cover in this episode, we have Sun Devils, another 12-issue maxi-series. I am slowly rebuilding this series. I had a few issues but I found a whole bunch in 25 cents and 50 cent bins. It's by Jerry Conway and Dan Jurgens. Uh, I've never read it. 
And I want to. I want to see what it's like. Um, this is Dan Jurgen's artwork uh, just after his pretty healthy run on Warlord. So this is early Dan Jurgen's artwork, you know, 1984. This is pretty early for him. But it's a sci-fi adventure tale, which is right up my alley. And I've never read it, even though I had a few issues when I was a kid. I read them, but I certainly didn't read all of it. So I'm looking to finish that so I can talk about it. Then we have the first Superpowers miniseries, five issues of that, tying into the toy line. This is by Joe Cavalieri and Jack Kirby. Adrian Gonzalez would do the artwork for the first four issues, and then Jack Kirby would do the fifth issue. And these were just all tie-ins for the toys. I don't remember the quality of them, but I can't imagine they were that great. Another 12-issue maxi-series, Gem, Son of Saturn, by Greg Potter, Gene Colan, again, and Klaus Jansen on inks, as well as Bob McCloud on inks. This was a repurposed Martian Manhunter story. Uh, the ad said, The Human Story of a Boy and an Alien. And Gem, Son of Saturn is this red-skinned alien that crashes into Harlem, New York, I think, um, and meets a young African-American boy, and it uh, features Superman, and just this whole, you know, story about this alien on Earth and um, people who want to get a hold of him. Um, and I don't remember much more. I don't even think it was ever collected, which is a shame. So the character would then go into limbo for a while, he showed up in Crisis, he showed up in Animal Man in the Limbo issue, but he wasn't. it wasn't until Morrison brought him back into his 1997 JLA story of Rock of Ages that he was brought back to the DC Universe. And then after that, John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake brought him into the Martian Manhunter series, and that's how they connected him with Martian Manhunter, and they connected the people of Saturn and the people of M Mars and... Um, he didn't have many appearances after that, but it's a character that I like because he is so kind of random and they don't use him that much. Uh, and I've always liked the, the the Maxi series. We had the six-issue Spanners Galaxy miniseries that I've never read by Nicola Cuti and Tom Mandrake. Conqueror of the Barren Earth four-issue miniseries. Now, I bought all four of these issues, never read them. Um, just recently because Derek Coward was talking about them on Comic Book Noise. So I saw him and I thought, oh, awesome. I'll get him. I'll read it. That way I can listen to his episode. Apparently, the miniseries is a wrap-up to um, the tale that started as backup tales in Warlord for about 20 issues or so. So Conqueror of the Barren Earth was this backup tale, and then they spun it out into a miniseries to wrap it all up, which is kind of cool. Flipping through it, I get a, I get a vibe that it feels like Dune. It's like they're riffing on a lot of the ideas of Dune. So uh, one of these days when I'll read it, I'll see if that's true. DC put out something called Robotech Defenders, two issues. It was supposed to be three issues, but then it was only two. It was a tie-in to, to toys, I think, but not necessarily actually to Robotech, which is kind of strange. So I don't know much more about that. And then we have two miniseries by Roy Thomas and Dan Thomas, America versus the JSA four-issue miniseries, and Joni Thunder, another uh, hard-boiled private detect private investigator story, but this time mixed with superheroics. And I read Joni Thunder years ago, but I don't remember much about it. Artwork by Dick Giordano. 
I liked her design, though, that very uh, crisp white suit that she wore, and then she could turn into uh, a thunderbolt and through some means, I'm not sure. Apparently, she also showed up in Infinity, Inc. and was dating Skyman at the time, the former Star Spangled Kid, but I haven't read those issues yet, so I don't know what that story is. But America versus the JSA, if you've never read it and you want to... If you want a detailed account of the history of the JSA, read America versus the JSA. So it takes place um, because um, the Batman of Earth 2, who had just recently died, uh, wrote this diary. And it was all about the JSA and how he claimed that they were traitors and, and um, uh, that they had committed treason to the USA. But it turns out the diaries were fake. Because what it really was, was a way to um, uh, flush out Per Degaton, the villain Per Degaton. It was a way to kind of go through the JSA history um, and reveal that Per Degaton was behind something or other. I, it's been a while since I've read it. But they did just put out a trade of it in the past couple years. And apparently it was all based on a real world event of finding Hitler's diaries, but that they also were fake. So Roy Thomas took that idea, Roy and Dan Thomas, and spun it into this superhero tale. And finally, in 1984, we have Superman, The Secret Years by Bob Rosakis with artwork by Kurt Swan and Kurt Schaffenberger, uh, all under the covers by Frank Miller, speaking of Frank Miller. And The Secret Years tells the tale of Superman Clark Kent at college. So it's kind of like what happens to Superboy uh, before he becomes Superman. And it's playing within the timeline that um, Tim Sale would, uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale would play with for Superman for all seasons. They both kind of cover that same time frame of Superman's career prior to becoming Superman, I should say. And apparently, New Adventures of Superboy issue 51, which also has a Frank Miller cover, is kind of a prologue to this miniseries. I've never read it, though. I want to read it, obviously, at some point. Uh, I see it every now and then in back issue bins. I hear some good things about it. I hear not so good things about it. So we'll see. All right, as I said, that probably would take me a while. Uh, just to cover a lot of these miniseries, so I'm going to stop there. And next episode, I will take a look at uh, the years 1985 through 1989. So if you've read any of these, or you're familiar with these, or you've read some of the ones I haven't read, let me know. I don't think I've missed any, but if I have, let me know that as well. Just looking at these first five years, it really does feel like DC was not only trying to spotlight their own characters, but look at new works and introduce new characters and new ideas and new concepts. Sometimes they're not even about the superhero genre. They're sci-fi and private detective, hard-boiled noir tales, some toy tie-ins here and there, some that are trying to push the edge a little bit, which, you know, I think is really great. So, all right, so we'll be back for part two in another episode or so. This has been the Daily Rios episode 325 for Tuesday, November 3rd.